and welcome. You're listening to Canberra's People Powered Radio, 2XXFM 98.3. The program is subject to ACT with me, Sophie Singh, bringing you stories of community and current affairs from our local city and beyond. Stories with a global dimension. Tonight on Subject ACT, we continue our series on environmental activism and strategy. Extinction Rebellion has NVDA, or Nonviolent Direct Action, at the very centre of its strategy for climate justice. Carlo Parsonen, an activist with Extinction Rebellion, joins us to discuss. Carlo, thank you very much for joining me on Subject ACT to take a deep dive into the strategy of nonviolent civil disobedience. It's great to have you here. Thank you for the invitation. Carlo, can you give us the context? What are the defining characteristics of, of non-violent civil disobedience? How would it be defined? And is it understood as an act or a broader strategy? You get a wide variety of people involved in such kind of tendencies. You get the, the George Lakeys and so forth who regard it as an absolutely fundamental strategy. And you get people who regard it as just a tactic on the day and we'll give it a go. And if it doesn't work, we'll give it away. That type of thing is quite quite varied. It can be quite an elastic term in that regard. Yeah, except to use the term non-violent, it does have one fundamental defining characteristic, and that is that if you are attacked, be it by you know workers, standers by, coppers, provocateurs, whoever, that you won't fight back. That's the defining characteristic. Okay. Extinction Rebellion carried out two acts of non-violent civil disobedience, if I can call it that, during Budget Week, just passed in May this year, on Budget Day itself and the day after. Can you give us an outline of what those actions were? Well, the first one, which was on Budget Day itself, was at Comcar, the large, I guess, parking space, security-guarded parking space for the federal government vehicles that cart the various ministers back and forth. So we closed it for a couple of hours. Largely people chaining themselves to gates. Um, One person chained himself to an actual vehicle that was seeking to get out early. Um, We just stayed there for a couple of hours. It wasn't intended to be any kind of great mass arrest situation. It was mainly to get the idea up that the budget needed to be a climate emergency budget and that we were attempting at some level to intervene in the ability of the government to move its budget up to Parliament House. And the day after, there was a second action? The day after was a a far bigger event. The Prime Minister was coming along to give his uh, budget oration on the lawns of Parliament. So we thought, well, let's see if we can intervene in that a little bit. So we closed off the entrances to Parliament House. It didn't quite work. Uh, One of the entrances wasn't fully blocked and that meant that the police were able to basically cordon it off and get vehicles through. But nevertheless, given that it was a limited number of people involved with a limited amount of preparation, it was remarkably successful. There were several trucks blocking streets. There was myself and a couple of other people locked into barrels filled with concrete blocking the, uh, the road up from Old Parliament House. We basically held it for about six hours. The logistics of doing acts like that must be quite considerable. There's quite a bit of planning that would go with me to go. Planning, there's checking out the site, this type of thing. There's filling the the, the barrels with concrete, of course, and how to move the half a ton of concrete. (laughs) Absolutely. You talk about intervening in the budget, intervening in that political process. Explain to me a little bit more about what you mean by intervening. This is a very low level intervention and came very late in the piece. Obviously, we weren't 
in any sense going to be able to get the government to change its attitude and introduce a climate emergency budget, which is what needs to happen. But call it a parting, you know, kind of starting shot. The, the idea of a climate emergency budget is actually not well known, but needs to be. Um, and so the intention was to at least try and get the idea up in some sense. How many people it affected, I, I could not say. Do you think it was successful in achieving that type of intervention that you saw was possible within the capacity that, you, that those involved were going to have? Within the limited objectives of the the people organising the action. Yeah, it was. I mean, we closed off the entrances to Parliament. It's the first time it's ever been done. And we held those for some hours. Uh, There were some arrests, not many. They were very reluctant to arrest at the time. But whether it constituted part of a strategy is a bigger question. And ultimately, it has to be part of a strategy with a set of clear objectives about intervening in the budgetary process. In your experience with planning acts of non-violent civil disobedience. Is there discussion about how you will assess the success of the actions? Is it that level of planning on how you're going to then afterwards see whether, you know, what worked, what didn't work, and in a political sense, what worked? I think it's important to distinguish three different types of non-violent action. One of them is the kind of ad hoc short-term things. And no, there's there's often not a lot of assessment because it's hard to work out what effect it's had. So you just keep plugging away. Yes. So that's one type. A second tradition which developed kind of in the 80s, but more in the 90s with a sp- very specific technology is in the situation where you have a very small number of protesters out in the bush, but actually doing important work stopping deforestation. And in that situation, they developed a technology around what are called tripods, bipods, monopoles. That is, you put yourself in a very dangerous situation on top of a a structure. Some sort of infrastructure, yes. Or you put yourself inside a barrel filled with concrete or soil or something like that. So you put yourself in danger. That's a second type, and that's a very direct kind of uh, intervention. And it either succeeds or it doesn't, so you can measure it there and then. The third type is the far bigger type, which is often put up as an example of successful nonviolent action, and that's things like the Franklin and Jabaluka. Now, the thing to remember with the Franklin, it's often put up as saying, oh, we had this blockade and it stopped the dam. It didn't, right? What stopped the dam was the careful research that uncovered the fact that the Fraser government had signed Australia up for the World Heritage Convention and that one of the sites that had been put up as a, as a site of cultural significance was the Kutikina Caves, Aboriginal caves in the, in the Franklin Gorge, which would be destroyed, inundated, had the Franklin Dam gone ahead. Now, From there, the Wilderness Society put it to the Labour Party in 1982. They said, if we help you get elected in 1983, will you stop this going ahead? And the Labour Party hummed and hawed, but eventually said, yeah, okay, if you can demonstrate that you can do it. So from there, from that commitment, came the organisation of the blockade. Now, there were several thousand people went through it. I was, I was one of them. I was a non-violence trainer there. But the thing is that what it did was created the capacity for setting up city-based local groups to push the idea of stopping the dam as a central idea of the campaign. So the blockade itself or the mobilisation at the site itself was just part of what was really a mass sentiment to stop the dam from going ahead. So that became, I suppose, a catalyst, if you like, yes. for mobilisation around the country. Catalyst is the precise term. What you would ha- what you do is you have people going through it, having this set of experiences, going back to their home cities, setting up local groups. And mass, it definitely was. There were very, very large marches in uh, Hobart and I believe in Melbourne. But the thing to remember is that 
you could reasonably say that the blockade phase of that was necessary insofar as it was necessary to set up that big, what was eventually an electoral upswell, but it wasn't sufficient on its own. Yes. It would not have stopped the dam. If the Liberals had won in 1983, the dam would have gone ahead. Now, you can say the same about Jabaluka. In in the context of Extinction Rebellion, I've also heard people saying that Jabaluka was this great victory for nonviolent intervention. It's the same thing. There was a a very, very limited legal fingerhold, really, that the traditional owners had, but they weren't able to enforce it via the Northern Land Council without a massive campaign. So what the blockade did was set up... Like the blockade didn't... It went for months, but it, as a blockade, especially setting up tripods and that type of thing, it was broken in the period of a week. It was over by the end of June in those terms. Nevertheless, the broader campaign was necessary in order to create conditions where it was possible to place more pressure on sections of the Northern Land Council so that the traditional owners were able to enforce this very, very specific legal veto. And there were actions, I was living in Sydney at the time, and there was a lot of political action, a lot of grassroots organisation in support of the traditional owners and in support of stopping the uranium mine. Uh, So it was about that groundswell, which ripples out, that is, is really what is necessary to create the political pressure on the politicians. Yeah, in that case, though, the the electoral strategy, there was an electoral strategy, there was an election, federal election in 1998, and the Labour Party seemed to be committing to not allowing the mine to go ahead, but they lost. The Liberals won that election, so um, that didn't come to fruition that time. Yes. Taking those um, points and uh, contextualising them for the uh, actions that are happening today around climate justice... And frustratingly recognising that they're not having that effect of building that mass groundswell for political change, which is perplexing that that is the case, given the potential and actual um, consequences that we're already seeing from climate change. What's missing here? Why are we not creating that impetus? Where are the, the disconnects? Yeah, well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I mean, every non-parliamentary political tendency is asking itself exactly the same questions. Were I to make a punt, it's that the great upsurges in history have been driven by immediate need. The French Revolution was initiated by the bread riots because of the increase in the price of bread. The Russian Revolution, both 1905 and 1917, was, again, bread riots and the demand for land, the demand for peace. People aren't feeling it. The People immediate. don't have that immediate sense of need. Yes. And the difficulty is that because of the structure of the problem, people won't start feeling that need until it's far too late to do yes. anything. Nonviolent civil disobedience has a very long and proud history. What are the unique challenges for that strategy where it's not happening as part of a mass movement? Well, Extinction Rebellion, people started sticking the ideas together about 2016 and it became really public in 2019. And it did envisage itself as, as being the spark for a mass movement. The idea was once you create these workshops and get people to come along to see how bad it actually is, that will prompt them to say, Jesus, we've got to act. There was a lot of emphasis put on developing those workshops, but then the response was quite small. And so people say, well, what went wrong? I look back at the history of nonviolence, especially in the last 50 years or so, and I noticed that those more strategically inclined forms of nonviolence constitute one kind of intellectual stream of nonviolent action, whereas the actual movementy stuff that developed from the 1970s was quite different. Those more intellectual forms see themselves relating kind of within the, the broad stream of 
the left and identify fairly strongly with, you, know, you get your mentions of Gandhi and so forth, but it's also the Aldermaston marches and things, things within Western cultures. Yes. The, I guess, practical end, what tends to go into groups is more the counterculture that emerged from the 60s and 70s. So a set of stances about everything from how you organise your groups all the way through to the stance towards expressing emotions and things, which, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm certainly not speaking for Extinction Rebellion in this, kind of constrains your appeal to a wider group of people. Because if there's any robust conclusion from the social sciences, it's that like is attracted to like. Yes. So the more you emphasise your difference, the less likely it is that you will appeal to the great mass movement that needs to happen. And it's it's just a tradition. Being moderately familiar with other traditions within the, within the left, at least as an observer, I'd say that they have their own similar kinds of constraining habits, shall we say. And does that breed some insularity, do you think? It can. It can breed a sense of we're special, be it, be yes. it that we are the vanguard of the revolution or we are the pure, we are the ones that really get it. Yes. And yeah. uh, I think that, I mean, that's obviously not yeah. very productive. Carlo, Extinction Rebellion has a theory that underpins its uh, strategy of non-violent civil disobedience. Can you explain to me a little bit about what that, that theory is? This is quite specific to Extinction Rebellion. It's not anything I'd encountered before in previous movements. An American academic called Erica Chenoweth sat down and did what she regards as, you know, crunching some numbers on various forms of non-violent action. And what she ended up doing was trying to say that non-violent action was more effective than violent action. The conclusion she came to was that if 3.5% of a given population is willing to not just march, but come back every day, every day and take what the security forces meet out at them, then that will be sufficient to overthrow a tyrannical government. Now, she's not talking about democratic governments or pseudo-democratic governments. She's talking about South Africa, Iran, Israel, in Palestine and so on. So she's looking at those previous moments in history and really quantifying the level of action in those circumstances. Yeah, and it's, it's a bit schematic, obviously, and you take it with a grain of salt. But part of the purpose of it was there's this way of talking about social change that goes around that where people say, oh, if everybody did this, if everybody did that, it's a fallacy. Everybody isn't going to do it. So the purpose of this is to say you don't need everybody. You only need, according to this, 3.5%. And people rubbish the 3.5% figure. But nevertheless, just look at it. In Canberra, 400,000 people. Let's say you're only talking about half of them, 200,000. 3.5% of that is 7,000 people. Now, if you imagine, can you imagine 7,000 people willing to come out and, and really take on the cops non-violently, day after day after day, surround Parliament House and get hammered? It, <laughs> there's no of way it would not change politics. For Melbourne, Sydney, yes. that's 70,000. Yeah. Can you imagine 70,000 doing that? So the 3.5% figure sounds a bit schematic, but it actually translates into real numbers. And I think where it's really difficult to envisage that is the day after day after day because we have mobilisations where maybe not those those numbers on a regular basis but you think of the student climate strikes I mean they've been huge in their numbers but it's about maintaining that momentum rather than having these sort of mass actions and then it slips away again. Yeah I mean the the student strike here was about 10,000 people 
but where were they the next week? Yes. I remember the, the protests against uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. I was in Brisbane. They had eighty to 100,000 people. I was one of the speakers. The sense of power was immense. And what I was saying is, this is fantastic, but you've got to come back next yes. week and we've got to yes. block roads and so on. Didn't get them. The opposition to the invasion of Iraq, that was really very widespread in Australia. What was missing in terms of capitalising and maintaining and building on that momentum? Well, elsewhere in the interview, you mentioned, you talk about the tradition of protest over decades. And I think it's actually a weak tradition of protest. People thought that coming along and having a rally on a warm Sunday or Saturday afternoon would make a difference. It was never going to make a difference. Just that on its own. Uh, I think the biggest attempt at an intervention like that I heard about was in San Francisco, where something like over a thousand, eleven hundred or something people were arrested one afternoon. But even that, it's not that big or that powerful because it, because unless you are able to intervene, not just physically directly on the spot, but in a way that actually undercuts the power of those in power by sort of striking is the classical method. Unless you can undercut in that way, you're not going to get any traction. Even envisaging a much smaller mobilisation on a frequent basis is difficult to imagine in this this current political environment. Yeah. I mean, in Canberra, if you take that 7,000 figure that I mentioned before, which is 3.5% of 200,000 adults, and you say, all right, there's 150 suburbs. How many people per suburb would there have to be to make up that 7,000? And you know, simple arithmetic tells you it's something between 45 and 50. Now, each suburb is presumably a few thousand people. So if you can't find 50 people in each suburb who are committed to the idea of really saving the conditions of the planet that we live on to keep it within human form, if you can't find 50 per suburb, what, what hope yes, you Yes, and it would seem a no-brainer, but evidently um, we're struggling to do that. Yes, indeed. So it's about somehow breaking through. And I think it's about continuing doing what we can do because even though it's not, we're not making the fundamental changes, there's still value in continuing to work towards that. You can't stop doing it. At the same time, the fundamental reason for Extinction Rebellion's existence is the claim that all of those things have been tried for decades. Having rallies, letter writing, street theatre, they've all been tried for decades and they haven't even made the dent. Right, so what does? It's that mass civil disobedience. That's the idea. But then that didn't happen. That hasn't happened. So where, where to from there? Yes, the $64 million question. Indeed. Carlo, Extinction Rebellion recently held a series of flash mobs in Civic. I'm interested in how performance like that can help to connect people with the underlying message of, of the need for climate justice and the fact that we're in a climate emergency. There's a couple of bits, I think, to that answer. The first one is that the way that extra parliamentary collective action has gone over some decades is it tends to be self-ghettoising. It's often geographical. You've got particular suburbs within cities which are full of people who are likely, most likely to take part. So there's a self-ghettoising tendency and it's really hard to break out of that. Part of the aim of the flash mobs is to get out of that into doing things where you are at least have the chance to talk a little bit with people who, who you wouldn't normally see. And it's that trying to get outside of your little cultural ghetto. The second side of it, though, this is harder 
is that you need to structure what you do in that way so that you capture people. You've got to have a meeting the next week saying, come along to this if you're interested, and then we'll build you into you know, local groups and so forth. Extinction Rebellion was doing that a couple of years ago. Various things have happened, including COVID. And a lot of that underground organisational capacity has dissipated. And so we've been trying to pull it back together again for the last six, eight months. Carla, it's been so interesting talking to you about nonviolent civil disobedience. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks, Sophie. That was Carlo Parsonen from Extinction Rebellion on the strategies of nonviolent direct action and the challenges of creating a mass movement to stop climate change and, let's face it, global devastation. The program is Subject ACT on your people-powered radio, 2XXFM 98.3. You can always stream us live or on demand at the 2XX website. Just go to 2XXFM.org.au. I'm Sophie Singh. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your week. (laughs) 